As I mentioned to the kids, today is often referred to as Reformation Sunday, and it was October 31st in 1517 that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses or his, his protests against the practice of papal indulgences and other uh, abuses that were happening in the church. And boys and girls, these were, just, these were just notices of things we need to talk about and debate in the church. And, and these propositions focused around two central themes, that the Bible as God's word is the central and ultimate authority in and over the church, and that atonement for sins and salvation was gained only through faith in Jesus Christ and not by man's deeds, not by donations that he might make for the church. And this was considered that, that spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation. But it was three and a half years later in 19. 21, after a, a great deal of conflict and suffering for, for Luther himself and for many others in the aftermath of that spark, that he stood at the, at the Diet of Worms, spelled Worms, it's not the Diet of Worms, it's the Diet of Worms. This was a, a formal hearing of sorts before the leaders of the church in the, in the Holy Roman Empire, and Luther was asked to recant of the many things that he had written in defense of the faith during those ensuing years. And doing so, they said, would restore him in good standing to the church, but failing to do so would result in not only being excommunicated from the church, but possibly executed as a heretic. And so Luther, worn down, by the increasing pressure and, and, and persecution of the very church leaders who should have had most understood and embraced his cause, and ever fearful of the, of the judgment, both spiritual and temporal, that his actions could bring upon him, still Luther stood before his accusers and he concluded his arguments with these famous words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I cannot believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor right. So here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Two things that, that Luther would not let go of, even in the face of, of great and potentially even greater suffering that he was going through, were his trust in the word of God and his hope in his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And while the self-righteous leaders of the faith accused him of blasphemous sin, Luther clung to a righteousness, not his own, but a righteousness that was revealed by God in his word and that was received from God through faith in Jesus Christ, his living Redeemer. Well, today we come to, to the final round of debate between Job, who has, has suffered unimaginable loss and pain in his life, all his wealth gone, all his children killed, all his health taken away from him, 
and this debate between Job and his three friends who came originally seeking to, to comfort their hurting friend, but now, after growing frustration at Job's defiance of their supposed wisdom and counsel, they end up accusing and condemning him as a blasphemous sinner. And convinced of the soundness of their doctrine, that God rewards the righteous and, pursue, and, and punishes sinners, firmly set in their conclusion that, that since Job is suffering so greatly, God must be punishing him for some great sin, and immovable in their insistence that if Job would just recant his claim of being righteous in God's eyes and repent of his sins against God, he would be restored to his, his position and his prosperity by God. Job's peers have, have now become his prosecutors. But Job is not convinced. He's not convinced. And while in many ways he agrees with the major premise of their arguments, yes, God is sovereign and just, and yes, he does punish the wicked, he thoroughly rejects their, their kind of one-size-fits-all theology and application of that truth to him and to his situation. He insists that he has done nothing wrong to deserve such great suffering. And he holds firm to what he knows to be true, that God is sovereign and just, and that he, Job, has done nothing wrong, having upheld God's word, having followed his ways. And though he still cannot understand how, he still cannot see the solution of, to the mystery, he knows his only hope is that God himself, perhaps through some mediator, some redeemer, will ultimately vindicate Job if only he could present his case to God. And so as the pressure and the, and the prosecution from his friends grows in intensity, we've, we've seen kind of the resolve and the faith of Job grow in tenacity such that, that now his, his accusers make their final plea and ultimately fall silent as Job grows more confident in his case. And so, so as we continue to look at these, these interactions and look at Job's struggle with the, the big questions of why all this is happening in the midst of, of his deep suffering and pain and the somewhat lame attempts of his friends to answer, help answer those questions, I want to look this morning at this, this topic of what not to let go of. That's the title of the sermon. What not to let go of. First, in the case of, of Job's friends, as they're seeking to, to counsel him and comfort him in his suffering. And then in the case of, of Job himself, as he's confronted with and dealing with that suffering per personally. So first, what not to let go of when, when, when counseling or comforting the suffering we see this in Job's friends. If you've ever been in a place where, where you're giving advice to someone, where you're, 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 you're trying to help them with something that in your mind is right and you know will work, but all you get is pushback and even, even rejection of that counsel from the one you're advising, you probably know the feeling of growing frustration, rising anger, greater insistence on proving your point, suddenly what becomes important now is winning the argument. <laughs> winning the argument. And in the course of seeking to do so, we can easily lose sight of our original purpose, which is to, to offer real, genuine help to that person. It can happen for us as parents 
with our children. We're instructing them and we begin to meet resistance or, or repeated uh, um, uh, pushback on those things or questions of why do I have to do this? And in growing frustration, we all know how it is, but our main concern can suddenly become to get them to do what we say no matter what. <laughs> Just to get them to, to change their behavior. And we forget our ultimate goal, which is actually to train their hearts rather than just change their behavior. Boys and girls, you may know how this feels sometimes when you're in a, a heated argument with your brother or your sister over something and you know you're right and so you just won't back down and you almost forget that the other person is someone you really love and you really care about. As Job's friends continue to press their point that God would not pervert justice, that God would not punish the righteous, and as their arguments continue to be met with Job's growing rebuttal, that while, yes, that may be generally true, it's not true in his case, suddenly they just take the gloves off and they forget the person they have come to help. They become totally focused on getting across the point they've come to prove. And as often happens, when we're set on being right, we can forget both the context of the situation as well as our compassion towards the person. In other words, we can easily let go of both some facts as well as feelings towards the other person. Eliphaz, who is the first to speak to Job, who was the first to speak to Job back in chapter 4, and there, if you remember, he opened his remarks in that first, those first comments that he made to Job uh, with a description of Job as, as a man who had instructed many, a man who had, had strengthened the weak, who had, 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 had firmed up the feeble, who had upheld the stumbling before him. He pictures Job as this, yes, compassionate, upright, good man. Well, now... After a long series of debates here in chapter 22, having had his point, having had his point that sin causes suffering flatly contradicted by Job, Eliphaz now sets out with a vengeance to put Job in his place. He appears in the opening verses to, back in chapter 22 to reverse his whole earlier opinion of Job. And now he accuses Job of being the absolute worst of sinners. He says of him in verse 5 of chapter 22, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. And then he goes on to give this long list of sins, which from, from all that we know of Job and the testimony of, of God about Job, there's no evidence at all that he's committed these. Eliphaz accuses him of extorting money from his brothers, of, of stealing from the weak and the poor, of withholding water and food from the hungry, of turning out widows and orphans, and basically flaunting all his riches. And then he takes words that Job had actually attributed to the wicked back in chapter 21, and he, he twists them, he misquotes them, he puts them into Job's mouth, and he says in verse 13, but you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Eliphaz misquotes Job in order to make it seem that Job is mocking God's knowledge and power. You see, he's so convinced of his version of the truth that, that he starts playing fast and loose with the truth in order to prove his point. 
He has no place here for context. Job has asked his friends several times, show me where I have genuinely sinned against God. And it, and it just doesn't occur to Eliphaz or to Bildad or to Zophar that, that Job could possibly be right. So in order to come up with something to convict Job of, Eliphaz fabricates these scenarios. He misquotes sources that paint Job now as the chief of sinners, the worst of the wicked. Job has neither done or said any of the, of the sorts of things that Eliphaz accuses him of, but that doesn't matter when winning the argument is the goal. And so he goes on the attack. And then in the end of chapter 22, he ends with this eloquent call to repentance. He says in verse 21, agree with God and be at peace. Receive instruction from his mouth. Lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. Sounds like good wisdom. But the problem is that Job has agreed with God. He has received instruction from his mouth. He has laid up his word in his heart. Job has never left the Almighty it just seems like the Almighty has left him and he cannot understand why. And so Eliphaz's counsel begins to take on the very tone of, of Satan's charge against Job, which we saw back in chapter two, of accusing Job of, of loving and following God when things are good, but of turning against him when things are bad. And then Bildad, over in chapter 25, he jumps in and he can only come up with a, a brief but an eloquent statement upholding the doctrine of man's depravity. He says in chapter 25, basically, God is too great to be concerned with man who is no better than a maggot or a worm. He's not even addressing Job anymore. He's not talking about Job's particular situation. He's simply coming back to that blanket indictment that tired refrain that, that no one is righteous, no one, not even one. A true statement, by the way, but only a half-truth if it's left apart from the hope that God has found a way to justify sinners in, through his Redeemer. Certainly for us, the, the doctrines of grace that were recovered and reemphasized by the reformers like Luther and, and Calvin in so many ways... It, it begins with man's total depravity. Man is sinful. It's the tea in the tulip. <laughs> but if you stop at the tea, <laughs> if you end there without moving on to the hope of God's solution through his sovereign sovereignty, his atoning grace, then there is no gospel. There is no good news. Only cynicism and despair and Eliphaz and Bildad have become so focused on defending God that their only message becomes convicting, not comforting Job. And so far, he's already thrown his hands up. He doesn't even give a third speech. He's like, I'm out of here. Brothers and sisters, as we're seeking to, to, to comfort others who are going through difficult trials, who are suffering through personal pain, or, or, or counsel those who are struggling with doubts or questions of faith, or, or is it, we're even contemplating those things ourselves. It is 
vitally important that we speak and uphold God's truth. But it is also important that we not let go of God's mercy and his compassion. We can become so focused on pointing out what we know to be true and what we see as the problem and what we're sure is the solution that we can forget that we're dealing with people And like Job's friends, we can forget or fail to take into account that there are probably a lot of things in this situation that we don't know. There are are some, some things in the context that we may not fully understand. There are purposes that God may be working that we cannot see. And that don't don't come with a a ready-made explanation and a simple Bible verse to quote. We can get so caught up in defending the truth that we let go of dispensing grace. And so we have to remember that Jesus was full of both, grace and truth. And Job's friends could not conceive of a scenario where the righteous would suffer. Jesus's The people that Jesus came to, the Pharisees, the leaders of the church in Jesus' day, could not see a scenario where an innocent, righteous Savior would come and suffer. And so they let go of any sense of comfort and compassion for Job who was claiming that to be the case and they simply pressed their point to the conclusion that he was getting everything he deserved. And they fall silent. Brothers and sisters, we can't let go of the grace of the gospel. In our counsel, we need to uphold the truth. We need to proclaim the greatness of God. We need to proclaim his holiness and his sovereignty and his righteousness. We need to affirm that one day he will judge the righteous and the wicked perfectly. But we also need to pour out the hope and the compassion that he will do what is good for his own. And that he has done that in Jesus Christ. So that's what not to let go when confronting or or counseling, comforting those who are suffering. In the case of Job's friends, they let it go. What not to let go when confronted with suffering ourselves. And we see this in Job's response. At this point, after Eliphaz's third speech in, verse, in chapter 22, Job's response seems to simply ignore what Eliphaz says. Job cannot see what his three friends think is self-evidence. He cannot understand why even the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. But he knows that he has not sinned and so he digs in his heels all the more against this notion that his suffering is somehow God's divine retribution upon him so Job will not let go of his case confident that God who is just will be his vindication and so his problem is that God seems to have abandoned him Job knows his redeemer lives but as he says in verse in chapter, verse 3 of chapter 27, which we read earlier, he says there, If only I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat, that I might enter into his presence. 
And there are times in our suffering when God just seems absent. He just seems not there. He seems to have forgotten us. He seems to have have turned off his ringer to silence his notifications, to not taking our calls. He's ghosted us. And that's the sense of isolation that's often felt in times of suffering. And it's often expressed even in the scriptures. David in the Psalms, in his times of trial, he says, How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And that's, that's what Job says here in, in chapter 27. When, when I look forward, he's not there. When I, when I turn backwards, I don't perceive him anywhere. I, I, I turn to the left, I turn to the right, and I cannot behold him. He's not there, he's gone, he seems absent. Job's experiencing what some have called the dark night of the soul. He seems, he, he finds himself to be in like this, in, this, in the midst of this tunnel. And, and there's no light anywhere. And everywhere he turns, all he sees is darkness. And he cannot find a way out. But what he clings to, what he holds to, is that he knows there is a way out. He knows there is a way out. And that way rests with God. So he says, if only I can, I can find him, if only I can come to him, if only I can lay my case before him. He said, then I would hear his answer. I would understand his word. He knows that to do so, Job knows that to do so would be a fearful prospect. He says, you know, God terrifies me. He says, but he says, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? He says, no, he would pay attention to me. He would listen to me. Here an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Again, we see Job's faith growing stronger. He is even beginning to see that God might have a purpose in his suffering. Look at what he says in verse 10 in chapter 23. He says, God knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out like gold. Job is in the refining fires of God's furnace. He is, it is hot. It is painful. And as hot and painful as it is, Job is beginning to have hope that, that actually God is at work. That he does care And so Job is starting to realize that even though I don't know or understand anything that's going on, God does. He has the answer. And Job maintains his integrity. He he walks the right path. He has kept God's way. He has obeyed his commands. He has treasured up his words, he says. And though he cannot change who God is or what God might do, He can believe and trust that God will do what is right. And so Job emboldened not to be silenced continues to cry out. 
You see, Job's desire is, it's interesting, in all of these things, it's not necessarily that, that he wants this suffering taken away, that he wants it necessarily removed from him, as much as it is to just understand why is it happening. He wants to see the purpose. He wants to know the plan behind all that is going on. And he knows there is one. <laughs> he knows there is one. He's still fearful. He's still uncertain of what it might be. But he's confident that God is at work. John Murray says that this is the very pinnacle, the apex of the Christian faith. This is what he says. To put it simply, it means that our resting place, as we may be faced with the mystery of God's secret will, is, I do not know, but I know that God knows. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. See, Job is convinced, as we will sing in just a little bit, that Whatever my God ordains is right. I don't understand it. I don't see it. I can't understand how it's right in this situation when I feel like I have been so right. But Job is beginning to, to come through this darkness and beginning the, the lights beginning to grow. That though he may not understand God's ways, God understands his ways. As Derek Thomas puts it, God is not a mystery to himself. He knows what, is, what he is doing, even if we don't. So as Job continues to, to question the mystery of why the righteous suffer and why the wicked prosper over in chapter 24, he's still wrestling with all these questions. As he continues to tremble at the, at the display of, of, of God's power and might in chapter 26 and, and fears having to face that power and might, he begins to, to, to come to the end of his argument by resolving once again to hold fast to what he knows to be true of God. He says over in chapter 27, as God lives who has taken away my right and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. In other words, even though God's hand is heavy upon me, as long as I have life, he says, my lips will not speak falsehood. My tongue will not utter deceit. I will not succumb, he says to his friends, I will not succumb to your pat answers and simplistic solutions. I will not put away my integrity. I will hold fast my righteousness and not let it go. See, Job knows, he knows that God is just. And he knows that God is sovereign. And therefore, he is going to defend his case to the end. He will not give in to the accusations of his friends, which are really the accusations of our chief enemy, Satan. And even though he cannot understand what God is, going, it, it, what God is doing to him, he is still prepared to trust him. What Job will not let go of when confronted with suffering, is God himself. Even when what God's doing seems to make no sense, even when it looks backwards from everything he has understood and, and seen in his life, 
he is still going to cling to who God is. Job knows that to abandon God in this moment would be worse than even what he is going through at that moment. Remember Jesus' disciples, when some of those who were following Jesus began to, to depart from him, began to, to, uh, to accuse him of blasphemy and to, to leave following him, and Jesus turns to those closest to him, to his friends, and he says to them, will you too leave me? And they responded to him, to whom else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Job has that same sense in his mind. He's saying, where else can I go? To whom else will I turn? God alone in his sovereign power. God alone in his righteousness. God alone in his justice. God alone in his mercy is his only hope. And so he will not let go of God and he will not let go of the righteousness that he knows he has before God. We don't know exactly how Job knows this. We know he's upheld God's word. We know he has walked in God's ways. We know that he has sacrificed for his sins and, 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 and sought forgiveness. And we know that God has looked at Job and said, have you considered my servant who is upright and blameless before me? And Job is clinging to that. He is clinging to his righteousness. And so, in the end, that's his only hope. In pleading his innocence and proclaiming his righteousness, Job again is not claiming that he is sinless only that he has trusted God's word, that he has walked in his way, and that he believes God will be true to himself and to his promises, and therefore Job will be vindicated. And brothers and sisters, as we go through suffering and trials, some of us have been there. Some of us are there right now. Some of us may not have experienced that yet, but we know we will at some point. But as we go through sufferings and trials, like Job, we must not let go of our integrity, our confidence in God, and our righteousness before God. But remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. You can turn there if you will. Romans chapter 3, here's how Paul describes that righteousness which we cling to. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. <laughs> Total depravity. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says the righteousness we cling to is not our own righteousness. It is not a righteousness that comes through through the keeping of God's word or the walking in God's ways. It is not a righteousness that we somehow attain, but it is a righteousness from God through faith in Christ Jesus. He is the redeemer whom Job looked for, whom Job knew lived, whom Job was, a, was confident that one day he would stand on the earth and see, even though he had no idea who he was. And he is the redeemer whom God has put forward. You see that? God has put forward as a propitiation for sin through his blood. Paul says the redemption, this redemption was to show that God is both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what Job couldn't figure out. (laughs) I know God is just. And I know God will justify the righteous. But how is he gonna do it? And Jesus is the answer. And so Job would not let go of God as both just and his only hope for justification. He clings to his righteousness as he knew it and had received it from God. And he entrusts himself to his just judge who alone can vindicate him. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is the greater Job. He suffered at the hand of God. He was rejected by his family and friends, but he held fast to his righteousness. And he refused to give in to the lies of his accusers. And he would not let falsehoods or deceit come from his lips. Instead, he laid down his life and he took it up again for us. And since he suffered for us, unlike Job, we now see more clearly the purpose and the profit that comes even in our own suffering. As we heard from Peter, which was read uh, in, uh, in his letter, 1 Peter earlier, we should not be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon us, but actually we can now rejoice in those insofar as we share in the sufferings of Christ, that we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And Peter ends this way, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, those who suffer like Job, it may be unexplainable, It may feel unbearable, but let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is our only comfort in life and death? That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, he says, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my heavenly Father. What must we not let go of in the midst of suffering, whether that of others or that of our own? We must not let go of the gospel. Don't let go of the gospel. That God himself, in the person of his son Jesus, that he would suffer, greater than Job would ever suffer, for our sake, And that the just punishment for our sin, our wickedness, would fall upon him in order that we might be made righteous. That we might stand justified and accepted and loved and forgiven as God's children. Not just his servants, but his sons and his daughters. And therefore, in the midst of suffering, 
We can cling to that. We can hold fast to it. We can rest and entrust our souls to our faithful creator and redeemer while doing what is good. And brothers and sisters, let us not be like Job's friends who in their earnestness to prove their point, to show that they were right, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, let go any sense of God's mercy and compassion and took judgment into their own hands. Let us be like Job. Let us cling to God. Cling to the good news that he is both just and justifier of all who believe in Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, how easy it is for us to loosen our grip upon the things we know of you, upon the things that we believe about you, when that grip is challenged by trials and sufferings and hardships that we do not understand and may never understand. But Jesus, thank you that you do not loosen your grip upon us. That when we let go, you hold on tightly. And so give us strength by your spirit and by your grace to cling to the gospel, to cling to the righteousness that is ours because you took our sin and gave us your righteousness. And Lord, let us share that good news with all who are suffering and do it with compassion to point them not just to their great need, which usually in suffering we can see very clearly, but to point others to the only hope in that need, and that is your son Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.